Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome to God's Planning. My name is Father Gregory Pine, and I am joined here with uh, by Father Bonaventure Chapman. How are you doing, Father Bonaventure? Doing great. Nice. Uh, let's see. We are uh, here at the beginning of the school year. Uh, you are a graduate student at the Catholic University of America studying philosophy. That's true. How are things going over there? Pretty good. Uh, back to the classroom, the other side of the lectern, as it were, and enjoying the study so far. Nice. Uh, favorite class? Oh, it's pretty early. I'm taking some interesting ones. Well, I guess SCOTUS and Ethics is pretty fun because he's close enough to St. Thomas, but he's also different enough from St. Thomas that it makes... It's always interesting to read him and see what he's up to. So I think Scotus right now um, is the most exciting, but it's still pretty early to tell. Okay. Any uh, sweet paper topic ideas percolating? Well, I'm tempted in my laws class to make a defense of the interlocutor with, with the Athenian stranger. So usually in Plato's dialogues, of course, Socrates is always taking on some version of the Washington Generals, you know, and the Harlem Globetrotters always beating up on some <laughs> some useless team. And so usually his interlocutors are, are some useless fools and some knaves. And uh, Peter Geach uh, wrote a famous article on the Euthyphro dialogue where he defends Euthyphro against Socrates and thinks there's no reason why Euthyphro should give in to Socrates' reasoning. And Socrates' reasoning is largely sof- sophistic and he's making mistakes, just like leading this man away from the good. Uh, and I like that a lot. That was fascinating. So I'm tempted to do that in the laws class with Megalus, who's a Spartan who's taking a beating from an Athenian and doesn't say that much, and to see what I can make of that. Dig. I'm for it. Uh, let's see. Uh, my side of the street, uh, things at the Thomistic Institute are heating up. We've begun to have on-campus events for the fall semester. So we're at about 45 universities in the U.S., Canada, England, and Ireland. And a lot of the students are, you know, getting things going. So we've had events here, there, and elsewhere, um, hopefully to great acclaim and uproarious applause. There's also a new course for, for you guys, too, isn't there? There is indeed. Yeah, we just launched a, we just launched a course called Aquinas 101, which is a, uh, let's see, if you are an interested viewer of uh, videos concerning philosophy and theology, it's a great thing because it takes you through the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. So it introduces you to who is St. Thomas, <clears throat> then his philosophy, and then uh, walks you through his theology. So all told, it'll be like 85 to 90 videos, um, each of which has a nice little podcast queued up for it and some course reading. So you can go to the website, Aquinas101.com, and enroll, and you'll get two conveniently sized emails each week on Tuesday and Thursday to help walk you through the course. So it'll take you about, you know, maybe nine months. But... Uh, Things are going groovily, like 16,000 people are signed up. That's so. great. And then next year is the course that moves on to SCOTUS 101 and then Occam 101 <coughs> the year after? Exactly. And then it'll be Atheism 101, Ooh. Nihilism 101. Yeah. Just okay. kidding. Um, so yeah, so things at the TR are going well. Um, a couple conferences too uh, in September and October in at Yale, at Columbia. Uh, we're having a retreat in Northfield, Massachusetts at the campus of um, Thomas Aquinas College's Northeast Campus, I guess you would call it. So things are fun. Things are exciting. There you have it. Okay. Recent news item, Father Bonaventure. There is a word abroad in the past few weeks that a Pew study has been taken of Catholics 
and a low percentage of Catholics believe in the real presence. Do you what? find this? <laughs> do you find this surprising? Do you find this scandalous? Are you shocked? Are you appalled? Are you downtrodden? Well, um, I guess you first feel it like it's surprising. You're like, oh my gosh, what Catholics don't believe in the real presence, which is that Jesus Christ is present in the Eucharist, not just symbolically, but that he's actually present there. But then the more you think about it, it's not shocking. It might be actually be shocking that it were to be uh, that most people believe, most Catholics believe in the real presence. That's my, my initial reaction to it. Um, that for the last 30 or 40 years, it seems like we haven't been spending a lot of time thinking about the faith as it is. So, of course, the sacrament of the Eucharist, where faith is what allows you to assent to the supernatural teaching, when faith isn't built up in the church, it seems, of course, the Eucharist and belief in the Eucharist is probably the first to go. I suspect, by the way, that if you did other studies, like, for instance, is Jesus Christ God? Um, are the scriptures inspired? Uh, is God three, person, three persons of one nature? And we'd find pretty similar percentages on those things. Although the Eucharist one comes closer to home, I think, for a number of reasons. Yeah, okay, so the basic idea being it's not surprising that people don't believe because people don't believe, which is to say <laughs> that people don't assent to the teachings of the faith because a lot of people don't have the faith. They don't mm -hmm. have the virtue, um, which actually gives them the capacity to hear God speak, uh, to receive his revelation, um, to interiorize it, right, and to worship as a result. Um, so more so than a crisis of faith in this particular doctrine, maybe it signals just a crisis of faith in general among Catholics? I think so. One of our one of our classmates, Father Joe McKenney, I was hiking with him a couple months ago, and we were talking about parish life and this, and, and he thought that, yeah, faith was the virtue that was missing today, um, that we often focus on the moral failings and the issues of, of the moral life that we, we need to work on, but that actually the virtue of faith is first and foremost the thing that he wanted to build up in his parish and with his with his parishioners, and I hadn't really thought about that before, but I, yeah, to believe in, in the mysteries of Christ, the mysteries of the church and the sacraments, well, you, you need faith, um, faith before charity in a sense, uh, to, to grasp those things. So I think it is part of, of a lack of faith, and we, not in the sense of lack of faith like a willed thing, but the, just the strengthening of the intellect by, by God to be energized to receive the teachings, the revealed teachings of him. So when St. Thomas talks about faith, he describes it as, well, he'll use like St. Augustine's definition to think with assent, mm. um, but he also describes it as knowledge based on testimony. So mm -hmm. he'll say, like, the reason that we believe isn't because something squares with our opinion on the matter, right? The reason that we believe is because the person who is revealing it to us is someone whom we have judged to be trustworthy. So you can think about like a natural example um, I believe that Moscow is where people say it is on the map because, you know, I believe that cartographers are generally truth-telling because otherwise they wouldn't have a job if they just made bad maps. Uh, so too, um, but in a elevated sense, in a supernatural sense, I believe that God is competent to speak to me and to reveal to me things divine, whether that be that there is a heaven, whether that be that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God and he took human flesh, and was born of the Virgin Mary, or that the Eucharist is the sacrament of his body, blood, soul, and divinity. So I think like a lot of times when you see people choosing among doctrines, that's an indication that 
they are not actually believing the things. They just have some right opinions and some wrong opinions. Because if you believe, what you're effectively believing in is the one who reveals. You're believing the witness. You're believing his testimony. Um, you're not saying, like, this accords with my thoughts on the matter and this doesn't, so I'll choose the first and discard the second. You're essentially, like, you're giving yourself to the witness, to the testimony of another person whom has been judged competent to reveal those types of things. So I think maybe just to kind of zoom in then on the Eucharist, um, what are ways specifically that, that one can build up his or her faith in the real presence? Maybe just start like uh, practically, you yourself are a convert to the faith. Mm. What were things in your experience of life that, um, I don't know, were, were big in your coming to believe in the real presence or coming to accept the teaching? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I guess I'd, you know, even though I'm a, a convert and I was a Presbyterian and then an Anglican, I'd always had a strong sense of of the real presence in some fashion or other. I, always, I mean, I didn't always believe in the Catholic doctrine of it, but I always believed that Christ is present there. It wasn't just a, it wasn't a mere symbol, mainly because Christ says, this is my body and this is my blood. And uh, the Catholic Church takes that really seriously and says, well, we're going to be literalist about this because Christ says this and we believe that Christ is speaking truly. It's a re- revelation that way. So that always, as a, as a Protestant who cared a lot about the scriptures, it seemed like there was no way around that, uh, especially with the John 6 passage when someone asked him, like, well, do you really mean this sort of thing? He said, well, yeah, actually I do. you got to eat my flesh and drink my, drink my blood. Um, so it was always clear to me, it seemed, that the Eucharist was special and that Christ was present in it uh, in a special way, and that he was, he was there in a real presence. And I would have described that in different ways. So I moved from Calvinism to Anglicanism to, to Catholicism. But the, the biggest help, I suppose, other than reading and feeding the mind and looking over the Church Fathers, for instance, and reading the scriptures and really digging into those and saying, yeah, is this, is this real? And reading the debates about the Reformation and, and all of this. Uh, I guess practically, it's going, being in front of the Eucharist and being at, when I was an Anglican at least, we had, I remember this, we had a Holy Thursday uh, service, the Lord's Supper uh, celebration, um, on Holy Thursday, and then we had reposition of the, the Blessed Sacrament. This is at the uh, Anglican or Episcopalian Cathedral down in, in Orlando. And then we had all-night adoration of the, uh, of well, what they considered the Blessed Sacrament. And it seemed perfectly natural, and as a so my roommate and I went, and we took a, an hour slot, and we were young guys, so we decided to take the 3 a.m. Spartan hour or something. So we, uh, we were at the Mass, we stayed for a little bit, and then we went to Waffle House nearby, because Waffle Houses are open 24 hours a, a, a day, basically. And then we had waffles and coffee and, and you know, steeled ourselves for the 3 a.m. Spartan hour. And then went back and prayed in front of the, 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 the tabernacle that was set off on the side of the, of the, of the cathedral for an hour there. And that was, that was huge, just being in the presence of... Uh, or what, or trying to assent to this, even though, of course, it's not valid uh, Eucharist there, but that uh, the practice, even without the content, this was forming a habit, and it seemed perfectly right to me. So adoration, if you call it like proto-adoration, um, that was a huge deal, and that carried on, even as a Catholic. So when I converted, I quickly found an all-night adoration chapel that was near near the, um, the, my house, or near the apartment I was staying in, and after working in a bookstore or something, or finishing some writing or something, I would go and 
and kneel in front of the Blessed Sacrament for an hour at 11 o'clock at night or 10 o'clock at night and just be there quietly with snow falling outside the windows and staying with Jesus. So that just being in his presence, I would say, uh, or adoring is a huge part of it. Yeah, and I think as you, as you describe that, I'm thinking just it's helpful to do things that reinforce the belief because, you know, we have bodies and we have souls mm-hmm. and uh, it's not like we're two things kind of glued together. We're one thing, body and soul. And our body gives expression to our soul's aspirations and our soul kind of makes progress or like kind of aspires through our body. So that's to kind of speak, whatever, somewhat improperly. Alas, alack, I've said it. It's, it's done. Um, but, but that's just a long way of saying that what you do with your body has real spiritual dimensions to it. This is like the, the revelation of having a, an incarnate order of a sacramental system of an embodied church. You know, like what we do in the body really matters unto eternity. And so when we talk about prayer, you know, usually you hear the acronym ACTS uh, or the mnemonic ACTS, adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication. Um, Adoration is the type of prayer that can be given to God alone, right? So there are Greek and Latin words that we don't need to get into. It doesn't matter. But there are are certain acts that are proper for God alone. So adoration and sacrifice. Like when we pray litanies, we only ask God to have mercy on us. We don't ask the saints to have mercy on us because it's proper to God to do that. Uh, So too, it's it's proper to adore God. It's proper to show him the kind of... um, like obedience and humiliation of body and soul that, that recognizes our subjection before him. And so when you adore the Blessed Sacrament, you write into your body the logic that, like, this is God. Just by virtue of the fact that you're, like, kneeling, you don't have to, like, say anything or repeat any prayers necessarily. You can just be in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, um, and you do so with the humble recognition that this is God. And this is the type... I would, I would never do this before anything else, right, uh, with the same kind of intention or with the same kind of disposition. So, yes, um, study is huge, and then uh, prayer is huge. Yeah, and the practices, too. Uh, so often people, when they're going past churches, will cross themselves, um, to r- remind, remind themselves that, that Christ is present in there. But also, whenever the tabernacle is open, like kneeling, for instance, I remember going and getting uh, some, uh, some, of the ho- some hosts for, for communion of the sick when I was in novitiate, and I remember going and going in genuflecting, opening the tabernacle, open the door, and then I heard all this sound behind me, and I, I didn't, I was, you know, I was convert, so I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I looked, I looked back, and all of the brothers, the brothers who were in there, had taken to their knees on kneelers while the tabernacle was open, and it was like the, this very visceral experience of, oh, yeah, this is, he's really present here, and so we act differently. It's not like we just decide to treat him during certain times of the day as present there, but He's present here, and so when the door is open, it's you. You fall on your knees, and that's the, those little moments of physical manifestation. I think reinforce the reality of the sacrament. Certainly. All right, we're going to take a brief little break here, and we'll be back shortly to talk further about the Eucharist. This is God's planning. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at opeast.org slash godsplaining. All right, here we are, back and better than ever. Um, Father Bonaventure, let's dive into the theology of the Eucharist. Mm. Uh, I know that for some people, uh, they hear technical words like transubstantiation, and it can be a little bit intimidating. Um, Perhaps it's more difficult to understand what the church teaches than the average person can comprehend. 
And so perhaps there's a reticence to kind of dig in. Um, so in your kind of, in your sense of the matter, do you think that, um, yeah, the church's teaching on the Eucharist is difficult? Is it comprehensible? Like what kind of legwork do we need to put in? Well, let me, yeah, the, the, I think it's important to do the legwork partially. In, in a sense, it's unnecessary if you have, a, in a sense, a direct vision of the sacraments. So the classic trope of an old church lady or something, well, it's just Jesus, you know. I remember I was teaching, or very young children, I was teaching religion at a middle school, and I had some seventh graders, and I remember one of the seventh graders' name was Alice, and the other's name was Verily, and Verily was a Protestant, and Alice said, Mr. Chapman, Verily doesn't believe that the Eucharist is Jesus. Tell her it's Jesus. <laughs> And, and I, I remember thinking for a moment, I said to myself, like, oh, I should probably make some distinctions here. And, well, verily, you know, it's it verily is kind of, it's not, you know, it's transubstantiated. And I, and I just said, no, this is still, I just said, yeah. And I said, yeah, verily, it's, it's Jesus, you know. It's just, <laughs> and Alice was like, see, you know, as if my authority mattered, which it didn't. Um, just a bow-tied, you know, professor or a teacher or something. But that, that was like the, the profound faith of, of the children. And that, that, that simplicity of faith is there. Nevertheless, uh, it's helpful since we have minds, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and because of skeptical challenges and because we don't, a lot of the church's teaching today is based upon a view of the world uh, that's not the modern view of things. And so we tend to think scientistically as opposed to scientifically in the sense, strict sense of knowledge. It's helpful to, to go into some of the details and it gives you, in a sense, more chance to contemplate. It's not like we're trying, the important point of, with any of this is not to evacuate the mystery. The point of using technical terminology and all this theology and pyro, theological pyrotechnics, as I call them, uh, is not to make the mystery therefore understandable and inte totally intelligible. It's, it's always a mystery. If you've, if you've gotten rid of, of all the mystery of it and you say it makes perfect sense, you've done something wrong. There'll always at the end of the day be mystery here. Like any of the great mysteries of God's providence and suffering, of Christ's two natures, the the rationality, the reason behind it allows you to enter deeper into the mystery. And I think the Eucharist is a great example of, of theology and philosophy at the service of mystery, because why does the church go into in for all this technical stuff, which I'll actually have you explain, because you probably love doing this too, um, uh, with transubstantiation and concomitance and, and by way of substance and all these sort of things, the speciates and, and everything. <laughs> Why does it do all this stuff, right? Why, why does it get so hyped up about these particular terms? And the answer is because it's trying, the church is trying to be faithful to what Christ says. He says, this is my body, this is my blood. And what the church does is try to say, how do we, how do we hold to that? And to do that, we need a lot of technical machinery if we want to explain it somehow that not again evacuates the mystery but in the eucharist you have this fusion i think which is a microcosm of catholic thought and practice mystery and philosophy or theology and philosophy reflection prayer and thinking is that the thinking component of it is always aimed to deepen the mystery of it we're not explaining away the mystery but trying to make sense of the literalness of it so um that's what the technology that's what the terminology is for so the terminology is transubstantiation and I'll turn that back over to you then. What Transformers? <laughs> so trans, okay, we got trans meaning different, and we've got substantiation, which comes from the word 
for substance. Okay, so here we just got to get into a very basic distinction, which I think will break it open a little bit and help us to better appreciate what's at stake. All right, so substance and accidents. The language comes from Aristotle and it gets picked up in the church's tradition and given excellent expression by St. Thomas Aquinas. But basically a substance is the kind of thing that um, is on its own, okay? It's the kind of thing that stands on its own. And then an accident is the kind of thing which stands or exists in a substance. Okay, this sounds a little bit like abstract at the outset, but basically like a substance is like a rock or like a plant or like um, an animal or like a human being. It's a type of thing that has a kind of coherence to it, a kind of interiorities in the case of living things, right? It performs certain actions. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's that thing, you know, like you don't get it confused with its um, environment. Like you're looking out on Michigan Avenue and you see a person walking by and you're like, is that person just an outgrowth of the sidewalk or is it a person? The answer is it's a person, you know, you know it's a person. And then the accidents are the things that we attribute to that person, the things that um, exist in that person. So Aristotle will list like qualities, okay? So that person is blushing or that person is fairly complected or that person is um, sunburned, okay? Or five feet 10. Right, so then you get into quantities, right? So like their, their height, their weight, that's another kind of accident or like their relation, like this person is the son of Marcia, right? The brother of Andy. Uh, you, you know, relations is another kind of qualification or way of speaking about accidents. Or you can get like time and place. You know, this person lived in the past in the 19th century or I'll meet you at 12.05, you know, on the corner, right? So time and place, whatever. We don't get, need to get into all, all of them. But they're things that qualify or things that quantify or things that relate to the substance and adhere in the substance, okay? And, yeah, and in general, those things are, are the things that do the changing. So for instance, when I... When I'm in the sun, I go from being pale white to a little more burnished white. You know, still still pretty, not very tan, but so we change colors as we grow, we change over time, those kind of things. Accidents are the things that in general we look around, they change. That's different in the Eucharist though. So what we have at stake in the Eucharist um, is first to kind of set out our principles. You start with the substance of bread and wine. It seems like there are five billion ambulance, ambulances and police cars just driving past today. Maybe that's always the case. Maybe you only notice it when you're recording things. Life is crazy. Okay, so um, we'll pray for the people that are in ambulances and we'll wish the best for the policemen. Um, so you have the substance of bread and wine to begin with and the accidents of bread and wine in those substances. So the bread appears you know, brownish, it has this kind of taste. Um, it feels this way to the touch. Um, it's only so heavy. Um, it's uh, only so large in dimension, right? And then what transubstantiation describes is a change to the substance of bread and to the substance of wine, whereby they become no longer bread and wine, but the body and blood of Christ. And now a helpful way to kind of like describe how transubstantiation is different from other types of things Let's go ahead and distinguish it from creation. Let's distinguish it from like annihilation. Let's distinguish it from, from other things that it's not. So what is distinct about this kind of change and how is it different? So in, in creation, you have something coming from nothing. So creation is, is a sense of nothing before, you know, so ex nihilo, you hear this, uh, this term. So the word God, well, God exists, of course. 
But then there's the material world is non-existent. So God creates out of nothing, creates something. So that's one kind of, it's not really a change because you're not changing, what what's nothing? It's hard to explain. <laughs> Annihilation's the, the other way, right? From something to nothing. So creation is nothing to something. Annihilation is, is something to nothing. And then mutation or the normal changes, that's something to something else, mm-hmm. right? And something to something else, it tends to be, of course, again, the accidental changes of things. Color, shape, sizes, all that, right? Transubstantiation, of course, is different because the trans is the, is the, is the change. Um, and it's not trans-accidental, but it's transubstantial because the substance is actually going to swap in that sense. Whereas before, say, I grow from being 5'5 five five to 5'10, five I'm a substance myself as a person, and my height changes. But in transubstantiation, the substance actually does the changing, but the accidents stay the same. Yeah, so in the order of nature, when we look around um, and observe different things, we we do see substantial changes, right? So like Mm -hmm. you can take a log and you can burn it, and then it becomes ash. So it went from being a log to being ash. But when that happens, and practically every instance, actually in all instances, that the substantial change is accompanied by changes in the accidents, by accidental change. So it went from being brown and hard and dense and weighty to being gray and light and, you know, I don't know what the word would be. Fluffy. Fluffy, exactly. That's the word that I thought, but then I thought that it was inappropriate, so I'm glad you doubled down. Always appropriate. Um, So whenever we observe a change in the substance, it's always accompanied by a change in the accidents, with the exception of what we observe in the Eucharist. There is a change in the substance, and then there is no change in the accidents. And actually, those accidents are just suspended miraculously by God. So what we see is the body and blood of Christ, but it's under the appearance or the species. So the word species just means appearance. The species of bread and wine. And those accidents God suspends, and we're able to access Holy Communion, basically through our interaction with those accidents. But we are dealing with a completely different substance. So a substantial change has taken place. It's gone from being bread and wine to being the body and blood of Christ. So that's like the basics. That's just kind of bedrock. What, what would you think would be um, like the first question that would occur to somebody? Something that we need to kind of clarify based on this basic explanation. I guess the, the first question is, well, how is Christ present mm. if he's... What do you mean by is he is he underneath the the accidents? Is he with them? Is so if he's if he changed when you say he's present, the substance has changed. Well, how do we how do we know? How do what do we do with with saying he's he's actually is he in there? Is he of the thing? That sort of thing. That's how I at least for me when I was thinking about transubstantiation, that's what first thing came to mind. So let's maybe just take that that one objection, maybe add, um, or maybe that one clarification, then add a a further note, and then we can wrap up here shortly. Um, So how is it then that Christ is made present through this? I think the way that it's classically described is sacramentally, substantially, and sacramentally. So Christ doesn't leave heaven, okay? Mm -hmm. So Christ is present in heaven in his glorified body. He doesn't leave heaven. He doesn't teleport down to every altar every time Mass is celebrated, but he is made present... The whole Christ is made present in the Eucharist, substantially and sacramentally. To be made present sacramentally is to be made present by the very sign itself. So the very sign of bread and wine, the very sign or the signification of the celebration of the Eucharist makes Christ present 
substantially. So it is precisely under the appearance of bread and of wine that Christ, who is in, in heaven, you know, uh, body, blood, soul, and divinity, becomes truly present, really present, under sacramental signs, after, you know, substantially, uh, in, in the Eucharist so that we can consume him and grow in grace and be yet more perfectly formed into the body of Christ. Now, one, one clarification, further clarification for you. So the bread becomes his body, the wine becomes his blood. Why then do we speak about both species as giving to us the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ? Yes, I think, and people think about this, like, can I, what if I only receive from under one species? Like someone says, well, I want, I want to receive both in my church or it only has one, so I just receive the host, but not so I only get half of him. But it's of course, because he's not present locally by his his actual matter in that way. He's still in heaven. He's present substantially. Substance. Well, whenever Christ's substance is present, then his whole self is present in that way. So the the presence of Christ substantially under the the accents of bread and the presence of Christ substantially under the the accents of wine you still get the whole Christ now the technical term for that is concomitance so that Christ's body present by substance under the on the species of bread at concomitantly at the same time brings along of course his his blood and same thing with the blood and the, and, and then his his body so when you receive under only one species, for instance, if you're gluten intolerant and you can't receive hosts or there's no gluten-free low-gluten hosts, I should say, um, and you just receive under the species of wine, you receive the precious blood, you're not receiving half of Christ. You're receiving him entirely because this isn't a piecemeal, accidental, local presence of Christ. This is a substantial presence of the whole Christ under these particular accidents. Yeah, a kind of shorthand way of summarizing it is because Jesus Christ, uh, the incarnate Lord, um, brings together or has together in heaven his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Whenever he is present sacramentally and substantially in, in the Holy Eucharist, where his body is, there too is his blood, his soul, and divinity. Because what is present together um, in his glorified state in heaven is present together wherever he is made uh, sacramentally present in the Eucharist. I think at this point, you're probably realizing why faith is so important in the sacrament, because the more you think about this, when you start getting into the theology, the more you think, actually, this is raising a lot more questions. How does this, transubstantiation seems to actually make it more complicated, or it raises, I suspect, questions in people's minds. And there's, you can go further down on it, but the reminder is that this is a mystery, and whenever we explain it, we're not trying to solve the mystery. We're actually trying to dig deeper to find out some truths about it that we have. The Eucharist is really is crucial. It's central. In fact, we're, we're, it's kind of what Catholics do with transubstantiation because tied within the Eucharist is not just the mystery of Christ's presence here, but of course his incarnation, the fact that he takes on a, a body and blood, that God does this. So it's not just Christ as a man, but Christ as God here. The redemption, why does he do the Eucharist? It's for the sacrifice of the Mass, that God is present to the world, that he reveals himself as speaking. So it's all kind of wrapped up in this, in the second. So why we care so much about why people don't believe in the Eucharist and why we care so much about it is that all the mysteries, in a sense, kind of narrow down on this central mystery, the source and summit of the Christian life, as John Paul II called it. So I think with that, we're going to uh, wrap up. Perhaps maybe as a send-off, we can leave you with a prayer of, uh, or a kind of antiphon of St. Thomas Aquinas 
describing um, the Blessed Sacrament. He refers to it in this way. O sacred banquet, in which Christ becomes our food, the memory of his passion is celebrated, the soul is filled with grace, and a pledge of future glory is given to us. So we wish you uh, a deepened faith in the true presence of the Most Blessed Sacrament and a rich and fruitful um, reception thereof. Uh, we'll be praying for you, pray for us, and we'll see you next time on God's Planning. Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.